podcast everyone welcome to the charvak podcast this is your host kushal mehra so as i was mentioning the honorable prime minister of india is scheduled for a state visit to the united states of america the visit starts on the 22nd of june and uh, i had told you guys the last month that we will be having a number of discussions about india america from a geopolitical perspective from a societal perspective and i wanted to culminate this discussion with a sort of a historical look back at what has happened over the years between india and america and i reached out to dhruva and i asked him would he like to come and speak and he was nice enough to come again so dhruva welcome thank you for coming thanks for having me back so where do we start uh, do we uh, so because the podcast where, that we decided to do was a history of uh, india us relations mm-hmm. so so i guess we have to go back in time so so where would you start if we look at the history well you know i'm i'm currently working on a little bit on this and for me some of the most fascinating things that i've learned um uh, are india us relations before independence i mean stretching back to you know the time when both india and the us were both british colonies and the very interesting links between the two places i mean they're on on the one hand they are on the opposite sides of the world uh geographically you know really apart from each other uh and yet there were so many things ways in which india influenced the us and us influenced india or what the parts of later became the us uh influenced india and you know i can give you maybe 10 12 examples of that which i think that sort of i think average people including people who follow the india us relationship don't always uh, know or recognize um you know let me give you a few examples i mean if if those of you have been to uh, calcutta would know there's a place called shahid minar which is a tower uh, it used to be called the octoloni column and it's named after a man named david octoloni who was actually an american uh, he grew up in boston lived in boston and then this was just as the us was becoming independent he shipped off and joined the east india company in the U- in, in in india um fought in multiple wars but he was best known for wars against the nepal uh, against what is today nepal uh, and as a consequence of his actions actually we have what is today the india nepal border and we have gurkhas in the what, what the british indian army and then the indian army subsequently so it's because of a, a strange slightly uh eccentric american that that we have we have those consequences um to give another example the other way you know a man who made a lot of money in what is today chennai in madras um he was the governor the he was a, the british east india company governor there uh was a benefactor to what is today one of the most prominent american universities and it's named after him yale uh, so elu yale was made his money in madras uh so there there are many i mean th- those are just a few examples lord cornwallis who was defeated in the us came to india where he played a role in um again with the east india company um and then even after the us becomes independent again the very strange sort of economic and and social links between the two you know we, we the, today the us vice president kamala harris is half indian half uh, uh african american her father's jamaican of uh, jamaican origin um and yet you know the second vice president of the united states aaron burr who is best known for shooting alexander hamilton uh, there's now a very popular musical about that whole incident aaron burr had an indian mistress with whom he had children uh, she I, i think came from calcutta actually via the caribbean ended up in philadelphia uh he ended up uh, having children with her um they would be i suppose some of the first indian american uh, Amer- indian americans there are 
uh, and eventually they married into the African-American community and their descendants live today. So again, they're, they're very strange and uh, unexpected links between India and the US. And that doesn't get into all of the commercial links, the value of the rupee in the 19th century, Indian cotton exports were changed by the US Civil War. Um, the, you know, one of, a very lucrative industry in the early 19th century was ice, the ice trade. And one of the ice houses, you can still see it in Chennai on the beach, uh, is associated today with Swami Vivekananda, uh, who stayed there um, uh, subsequently. But there was an American, it was basically an American ice trader who built these ice houses across what is today the Indian Ocean. So again, very interesting links between the two countries that go back quite a long ways. So, so I guess we can divide uh, the history of the relations um in different eras, right? We can talk about pre-independence, then post-independence, I guess, uh, before liberalization, which is the 1990s mm -hmm. reforms. I think we can divide these into three uh, uh, solid blocks. Yes, yeah. No, I think that's fair to say, like before Indian independence, where it was really a colonial era links that, that connect, you know, for better or for worse, that connected India and the US. Uh, the post, you know, post independence and largely defined by the Cold War, and not coincidentally, in 1991, the uh, Soviet Union collapsed. India under, under started undertaking its economic liberalization, and that transformed the India-U.S. relationship. I'd say one one other big change, one other big turning point, really, I think, was the nuclear test, the 1998 nuclear test, where until that point, really, in the U.S. at least, the attention to India was not as focused. And initially, again, for, for it was U.S. sanctions against India. It was uh, it was really anger against India for doing those nuclear tests. But that started a discussion, at least between at the government to government level, that really opened up a, a in, in fact a much more productive relationship today. So, uh, so what was the distinguishing characteristic of? Uh the British India and American uh, relationship. Like, what, what, what would you say were the few things that stood out from a historical perspective, from an American perspective and an Indian perspective, both? Well, you know, before the US became independent, again, both in parts of India, parts of what is today India, parts of what is today the US were both governed directly and indirectly by the East, well, the East India Company and by the British largely in, in, in the US. Uh, what became the U.S. So essentially it was British trade and there wasn't much social interchange, but essentially British trade and economic links somewhat loosely connected the two. And again, you have some evidence of that. After the U.S. became independent, the U.S. was seen as a rival to Britain initially. And, you know, when they tried to send an ambassador to Calcutta, which was, which was then the capital, and the British kept them out. The British were actually very fearful of American missionaries and American diplomats uh, from coming to India. They actually tried to limit them. Uh, in fact, they, there was a shipload of American missionaries who tried to come to the US in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. They were diverted to Mauritius because the, Brits didn't, the, 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 the British didn't want them messing up what was a, a colonial extractive uh, commercial enterprise on, on their part. Um, so again, it was, it was actually one of, one of difference. Uh, that changed again later on, um, and you started to see, again, the, the sort of a, a more normal set of uh, interactions between Americans, sometimes driven by curiosity. Some of the leading Americans of the 19th century actually visited India from the former president, Ulysses Grant. He did a world tour. He was very popular at the time in the U.S. because he had been credited with ending the Civil War. Um, and he uh, did a around-the-world tour as an ex-president, and he spent a lot of time in India. Uh, Mark Twain, who is perhaps the most popular American writer of the 19th century, also visited India, and he had a much more sympathetic view than a lot of Americans at the time, many of whom uh, bought into, uh, who actually were not 
you know believe that the colonial enterprise was was actually not bad. Um, you know, Twain and a few others had had a more a cynical, skeptical view. Uh, and then again, a lot of uh, Americans, not not the majority, but there were certainly Americans who uh, directly or indirectly supported the independence movement and actually felt, uh, unlike a lot of Europeans, felt uh, that uh, India should be independent. Um, and most significantly, in fact, perhaps Franklin Roosevelt, the U.S. president, who wrote into something called the Atlantic Charter. He had an agreement with with um, Winston Churchill during World War II. And it has a very strong la strong language on anti-colonialism, uh, which is uh, kind of remarkable to look back upon, given that Churchill himself was such a strong, ardent supporter of colonialism. One interesting bit I remember is uh, from my reading of books is I remember Will Durant. He, his mm -hmm. books yes. and his way of looking at India and uh, his book his commentary on the British Raj, he was very critical of the British Raj mm -hmm. and what yes. the British did in India. Now, yes. Mo, I don't know how many people know he was an American. Uh, you know, it's funny, those, his books and his wife, uh, their, their books are so, in their day, were so popular uh, that yeah. they, they actually introduced a lot of people. You know, I say that book, and there's another book by A.L. Basham called The Wonder That Was India. Uh, mm -hmm. And these kind of introduced a lot of people who, are, you know, average people of a certain generation. I mean, this would now be people in their 60s and 70s. Uh, for them, that was often a gateway, you know, that was their introduction to Indian history and Indian culture. Uh, interestingly, A.L. Basham actually wanted to, he was upset with the, it was a series of books called The Wonder That Was, and it was on ancient civilizations. And he actually, I believe, personally objected to that title because he said it should be The Wonder That Is India, not Was India, um, not in the past tense. But uh, it was part of a series. So, so what do you make of... Uh certain bits of American relationship uh, uh, before independence when it came to uh, came to Indian India's freedom struggle. So what was the over overall uh, bent of the American side? Uh, I know they were sympathetic to India's uh, struggle. They were always of the idea that India should eventually, you know, get, get out of the clutches of the British. But uh, was it as simple as big, they should get out of the clutches of the British because it is what it is. They, they deserve to be free or there was always uh, a carrot and a stick kind of a relationship well we say this you say that kind of thing no you know i think different people have different views actually there's a i have it here there's a book uh, by by uh, Srinath Raghavan uh, on India, India's engagements with South Asia uh, over the years and uh, but the early chapters covered some of the pre-independence era I think he paints a picture that's much more cynical that is uh, you know again the majority of american commentators and influencers were actually not unsympathetic to the colonial enterprise meaning that they they actually supported it they saw it as, as civilizing it was still driven even even americans were driven by a sense of um, uh, evangelism of uh, you know they supported some of the missionary activity there uh, often engaged very actively in it they, there was a certain, um, they looked down upon in Indian culture and society as sort of heathen. Um, so, the, you know, and certainly that was the case. I mean, as I said, I think there were a few uh, who had a different view uh, about that, who saw parallels between the American freedom struggle and the US, uh, the Indian freedom struggle. Uh, so those that we would now consider on the sort of center left uh, were actually much more sympathetic to, to uh, India's independence struggle. And that came out in the press, you know, I mean, Gandhiji, for example, uh, was very uh, good about using the American press to highlight the, you know, and found sympathetic journalists, for example, who, who were willing to report on some of the abuses of, uh, of, of the British Raj. 
Um, and uh, that was, you know, that helped in some ways get international attention for India's freedom struggle. Yeah, but it's very interesting. Uh, 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 you know, this this piece in the Foreign Affairs written by Daniel Markey is making a lot of, uh, uh, you know, rounds on WhatsApp too. Uh, yeah. It's it's very interesting. It has reached WhatsApp. I never thought foreign policy journals would reach WhatsApp, but they yes. did. Yes, uh, but so it's very interesting the tone and tenor Daniel has taken in that uh, in that piece where uh, uh, it's a very interesting line. He says yet again and again, India has disappointed American hopes. Gandhi, for example, frustrated Roosevelt by prioritizing India's struggle for freedom against the British Empire over the war against Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany. Uh, yes, cry me a river because we wanted our independence more yes. than anything else. I mean, it's it's fascinating that this is supposed to be a problem. You know, I I, uh, that, I think that part particularly stood out. I mean, I, I know uh, the author um, uh, and I've known him for many years. Uh, I mean, I, I have sort of, I think, the two or three lines of disagreement fundamentally with the, the, the tone of and, and the argument of that piece. One is it presumes that the U.S. has often prioritized democratic um, uh, democratic objectives, when in fact, you know, in many times in the past, India actually was pushing for um uh, for democratic cooperation and the U.S. undermined it, you know. So I mean, I'll give you a few examples. Pakistan is perhaps the most dramatic example, um, where India was a democracy in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and 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 Pakistan was not. Uh, and yet, at various points in time, particularly after the 1960s, the U.S. prioritized relations with Pakistan over relations with India. So you know, it's quite clear. You know, in fact, I would say the 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 boot would be on the other. The, the other foot, um, uh, you know, but I mean, there are many other examples. The U.S. has prioritized relations over Ch with China, over India later on after the 1970s. Even now, you know, the U.S. has relationships in the Gulf that are not driven by shared values. Um, up, the U.S. supported apartheid South Africa at a time when India was actually trying to lead global opinion in shaping global opinion against how, how apartheid was fundamentally unequal. Um, so, you know, I mean, in, in some ways, the, this idea that the U.S. has always uh, uh, supported democratic movements and India has always opposed them is, is not at all, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the examples given are very cherry picked. Uh, that is, you, you pick the examples that prove your point and you dismiss all the examples that don't. The second thing is I actually think, uh, I, I would actually say values still plays a very fundamentally fundamental role in, in you know, particularly at the social level in bringing Indian, Indians and Americans together. There's still a sense of common law checks and balances, democratic elections. And that's why you have I mean, people vote with their feet. Indians are more comfortable in the US than they are in many other countries because of those you know, similar, I mean, may not be identical, but similar values. And you see this again in policy as well, which is on um, uh, you know, who is India engaged in trade negotiations with today. They're largely market, market uh, economies and democracies, uh, UK, EU, Australia. Um, if you look at um, technology standards, it's also driven by a sense of values, the sense that the governments can, should and should not play a role in certain, in driving certain technologies and where is it appropriate. And on, on that, India and the U.S. increasingly see eye to eye. So I, I, I think that there's some fundamental differences. It's, it's a provocative argument. I mean, not provocative. I mean, it, it, will, it will get a lot of attention. But I think there are reasons to doubt, you know, from, from two angles. One is has has that always been the case with the U.S.? In fact, again, I think historically the record is much more mixed. 
Um, and secondly, that, you know, I think even today, fundamentally, there is, I would overstate it. I'm, I'm, I come from a sort of more realist tradition and believe that interests ultimately will win out over shared values. But I, do, I wouldn't be so dismissive of a certain common strain of shared values between India and the US. Now, uh, will people have shared values through? Yes, people will always have shared values. But uh, I think what uh, the the essay was trying to say was at a, at a at the level of the governments, there are shared interests and are shared values. And I think that essay mixes a couple of things. Like I agree with the essay for all the different reasons, <laughs> not the reasons the author has uh, stated in the essay, because I think the author is uh, way off the mark there in their understanding. You're right to say that the examples have been cherry picked and Pakistan is the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. I mean, how, how can you not mention Pakistan in an essay now? Uh, which is uh, which takes you know takes me back to our first discussion where yeah, I don't know if you remember I like I am a firm believer that uh, foreign policy in its general tone and tenor uh, is nothing but transactionalism. I mean countries like to say things to each other which are different, but the, I mean that's the way. Like these are uh, like I say, societies come up with convenient lies so that they can do what they have to do and and i think in the realm of foreign policy the convenient lie that countries including india uh, tell tell themselves is there is something like a larger value aim that they have i don't think so they do because if you look at the record of america or india in that sense in many places they will falter like i'm not even uh, singling america out i'm mentioning america and sorry to interrupt you but look even if it is a pure and i, I come again i come from a realist sort of uh, starting point which is a transactional one fundamentally that countries assess their values they, they, they assess their interests they assess cost, benefit, risk, and they make decisions accordingly. By and large, that explains a lot. But I mean, let's say if even if we were sort of we were doing a transaction, right? Any kind of commercial transaction, would you continuously trade with somebody who repeatedly, you know, is stealing money, giving you bad, you know, uh, sort of bad goods? You know, is is, is not delivering on on services, is uh, using you to uh, get derive better, you know. Uh, uh, sort of uh, better prices from somebody else you know people do that all the time uh, that's 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 sort of uh, but would you over time continuously transact with that that kind of person or would you transact with somebody who is here are my books they're open you know they're they're, they're relatively transparent i'll deliver on what i promise you and I, I will tell you quite honestly that i can't promise you something and i would you rather deal with that kind of actor so that's where I think the value, you know, even in a very transactional world, in a doggy dog world, you still uh, you still hang out with the with the dogs that uh, um, that treat you better. That that so, I think is where the values come in. Uh, the famous Hindi line would be "choro mein bhi usool hote." Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So on that, I'm in agreement. But now let's get into the meat of the discussion, which is 19. 40, uh, you know, 19 for mm -hmm. our post-independence before uh, liberalization. Now, this is, you know, this is the most interesting period. Like you said, there was a Cold War. There was Mrs. Gandhi's relationship with the United States of America, India, banning uh, certain company, American companies uh, mm -hmm. or removing them like Coca-Cola. I don't know if people like uh, 18 to I, 25 folks, Coca-Cola was banned once yeah, in yeah. India. No, I, I remember when Coca-Cola came back. I, I'm old enough to remember when uh, it, it started to come back, by, by which time Thumbs Up and Campicola had dominated the market. So, 
yeah, I, I still remember that. But I, yeah, I wonder if people under under twenty five do. Yeah. So, so what do you make of that? So, were, were there phases in that relationship too? Yeah. Let's say we had the Nehruvian era, where what was the Nehruvian era relationship, uh, and then Indira Gandhi takes over, and then we had a, a, a slew of prime ministers. Then Dr. Singh, uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh comes into, you know, a, a, a term. I'm looking at uh, the, you know, the post Indira Gandhi. pre dr manmohan singh era as a term where we had a little bit of uh, instability politically in terms of uh, you know number of prime ministers but otherwise india by and large if you look at our history we've had long term prime ministers overall yeah even in vajpayee for 6 years or so yeah. you know it was um, uh, quite significant and a lot happened at that time uh, you know i look i i put it india becomes independent in 47 I actually think if you look back, and again, there's now a lot more historical research on this from this 1947 to 1965 period, and you know, I think what we forget about is actually it was again a much more constructive India-U.S. relationship than people sometimes remember now. Um, that is, you know, Nehru came on a two-week visit to the U.S. very early in his tenure. He was greeted by President Truman. He visited some very interesting places. If you think back upon it, he he went to Washington, New York, Madison, Wisconsin, Chicago, end up in San Francisco. Give like a speaking tour, and um, you know, it, 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 there was a deep investment at that time on both sides, or an uh, a desire to to deeply invest on both sides. Um, some of it came to pass. Uh, you know, there was a period in the late fifties, early sixties. where india was the single largest recipient of us aid this after the marshall plan for, to europe had sort of largely um, run its course and there was a brief period where india was actually the single largest recipient of us aid actually there's, a, there's another good book here which i read this is called the price of aid by david engelman who is a professor at yale and it's a really interesting history of uh, the us soviet aid competition uh, particularly so after 1955 the the soviets got in the act uh, nikita khrushchev came to india um and set up a uh, what was then a, a steel plant in in uh, madhya pradesh and that kind of started the race between india and the, uh, between the us and ussr over sort of influence in india um and india was you know again reasonably adept until the until 1962 at sort of balancing both those relationships and deriving the maximum benefit from both uh, and that was i think the idea behind non alignment originally that the wheels started to come off though and i think 1962 the war with china showed that which is india's relationship with the, neither the us nor soviet union was good enough that they were able to either deter or assist in a timely manner uh, india's uh, uh, defense against china uh, there was again some us aid that came subsequently but india was not a high enough priority for 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 either the soviet union or the us at that time so again that that period i think shows both the um i think we overlook some of the benefits at that time um the material benefits and and the political benefits but it that that uh, you you saw both the the obvious strengths of non alignment and again it looked like a very smart policy there's a very famous uh, polish economist who described india as the the clever calf that suckles from two cows uh that was deriving the maximum benefits from both the eastern and the western bloc and yet after 62 i think the limits of that became apparent what changed was actually the 1965 war with pakistan where the us suspended aid to military assistance to both india and pakistan so even though pakistan was the clear aggressor in that case it sponsored an insurgency in jnk and then intervened with a conventional uh, force um 
the U.S. Uh, essentially blamed both the victim. Uh, by the way, if this sounds familiar, uh, you know, bo both the aggressor and the victim in that case treated them equally and, and suspended aid. And that never really came back. You know, the, the, uh, after 65, uh, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship deepened. After about 1968-69, the India-Soviet relationship deepened. And I think there the alignment, you know, essentially the India and the U.S. were essentially after 1971, this was crystallized in the Indo-Soviet Friendship Treaty, um, that after 1971, effectively India and the U.S. were on the opposite sides of the Cold War. Um, despite sort of uh, lip service to, to non-alignment. So, uh, you know, I, I, again, I think if you look back on this period, you can, you can look at a pre-71 or pre-65 period where there was a much more promising cooperative relationship and then a post, uh, so second half of the Cold War where essentially India and the Soviet Union were very closely aligned. And even though, you know, again, we look, we tend to forget it, there were actually attempts by Indian leaders in the 70, late 70s throughout the 80s to kind of and into the 90s to rectify some of that. So Moraji Desai made a visit to the US as PM. He didn't last very long. Indira Gandhi, when she came back, in fact, made a very successful visit, uh, met with Ronald Reagan, tried to reset some of the relationship. Um, but the Afghan war actually took over. And even though she seemed to have get along quite famously with Ronald Reagan, the president at the time, the fundamental structures of the relationship were not amenable to, to that change. And then I think the last major attempt before 91 was Rajiv Gandhi, again, made a very successful visit in 1985. He spoke to Congress. He, uh, you know, you can see now because the U.S. has declassified archives from that time where the, the Americans were quite keen. They're like, well, let's let's see what we can do with India. They started, uh, you know, uh, one, one thing again that gets overlooked, uh, there was they were thinking of selling um, uh, very advanced uh, command and control uh, aircraft to Pakistan. And India feared at the time that it would tip the balance very decisively in Pakistan's favor. And India actually lobbied the U.S. government at the time to not, not do that sale, and they didn't. Uh, and by the way, this is the same time India managed to get GE engines for the indigenous fighter program, the, what became the Tejas uh, fighters. So again, there were these, I would say, when you look back, we, we tend to look over all of these differences, and there were fundamental differences on, on the Cold War, on economic policy and trade policy, as you mentioned, Coca-Cola, um, you know, there was the Bhopal disaster where obviously, you know, the U U.S. company was blamed for it and, and uh, you know, which is quite horrifying. Uh, we had all of these major different. Afghanistan was a major point of difference. Um, we were basically, India and the U.S. were supporting opposite factions. And yet, uh, despite all of this, there were attempts, and again, largely often driven by the Indian side, which I think Americans don't appreciate, to try and rebalance that relationship. And the fun, you know, the fundamental differences won out at, at that time. That all changed after the late nineties. So, so what do you make in the same period, which uh, American president played a significant role in terms of the American side of things? Like, was it Eisenhower? Uh, who, who do you think uh, played that role of easing things in the Indo-American relationship? You know, some tried. Uh, some tried and failed. Uh, you know, I mean, this was some, this, another book on this. I was, I'm doing a, a book. This is a, a Tanvi Madan's book, and this is on uh, the the role of China in the India-U.S. relationship over the Cold War years. Um, and you know, again, some things that you don't think about. Eisenhower, I think, uh, uh, meant very well. Uh, was sympathetic. J John F. Kennedy was very sympathetic to India, um, and I think wanted to do more, um, but. But uh, again, had other preoccupations. During the 1962 war, the Cuban Missile Crisis was at exactly the same time. So 
his attentions were focused on that rather than the you know uh, India-China uh, conflict. Um, strangely enough, uh, uh, Richard Nixon, when he before he became president, I mean, he's perhaps known today for being the president who was most anti-India because of the 1971 war and mm-hmm. uh, the support for Pakistan at that time. And yet, he, when he came to power, he wrote an essay saying that India, the U.S. must try to improve relations with India. It's kind of interesting to read back in time. I mean, he, he it's quite it, it's quite a high priority for him in in this essay before he as a presidential candidate. Um, and then he made a visit. He made a state visit to India um, uh, as president before again things went south. Um, uh, later on, I think it was less a priority. You know, it was not that there was an anti. You know, Reagan didn't have a inherently anti. Again, he got on famously with with Indira Gandhi uh, and with Rajiv Gandhi. Um, Jimmy Carter did too. I mean, I don't think any of them had an inherently anti-India bias. It was just a low priority for them. Uh, it was, you know, when they looked out on the world, it was particularly the second half of the Cold War. They felt, you know, India was signed up to the USSR. It wasn't much of an economic link. It wasn't politically relevant. There wasn't much of an Indian American community here. So it was just a low priority. It was not, um, and that meant that the structural factors essentially overrode. Um, the structural factors overrode any of the there was a limit to what a president who particularly one who did not uh, for whom this was not a big priority could do um, this is actually another book uh, by Meenakshi Meenamed uh, called Matter of Trust on India-US relations and she has kind of documented the relationship from the lens of each individual US president um, so it goes into a bit more detail on on, on that um, uh, on, on where India played a role in each US president's thinking do you think from an American perspective in this historical journey that we have looked pretty much India's relationship with Russia, it all boils down to India's relationship with Russia and especially during the Cold War era, if you consider um, the, I don't know, the way the American uh, raison d'être, as they say, mm-hmm. is that, you know, there's this American foreign policy, I, I notice this, they're always obsessed with like, we need one bad guy. That's how the American foreign policy has always been built around. Who's the bad guy? Uh, oh, he's supporting the bad guy. Or he's kind of pally with the bad guy. So we can't trust them. But, that, you know, I don't think that's unique to America. That's This is, you know, when uh, this is a kind of a fundamental to international relations, right? Which is, you, you look at, you know, I mean, uh, political scientists, uh, people who come from a political science background, they look at it this way, right? Which is, you where are the major powers positioned? How does that describe the world? So is it a multipolar world? Is it a bipolar world? Is it, you know, who are the major actors? Who are the great powers who help shape and define the rule, this rules of international engagement? And how do they align with each other? And you know, during from the pre Cold War, there was a constantly shifting alliance. You know, um, Germany and the Soviet Union were aligned until a few years later they broke and and um, uh, were on opposite sides of World War II. Um, the U.S., uh, sorry, the U.K. and and Germany were allies effectively for much of the 19th century, and then by late 19th century, the U.K. and France switched because the U.K. became worried about Germany becoming too powerful. So this is a fundamental. I mean, this is the U.S. is no different. What is what changed was during the Cold War there there was a realization after World War, the dust had settled on World War II, or as it was settling, that there would really be two poles. It would be a U.S.-led pole and a Soviet-led pole. And uh, Roosevelt initially tried to incorporate the Soviet Union into U.S.-led structures to govern this new post-World War II world. Uh, in fact, people forget the Soviets were participants in the Bretton Woods, um, uh, the Bretton Woods discussions that led to the formation of the World Bank and IMF. So the Americans wanted them in the tent, but that cynicism grew after uh, after 1945. The, the differences were quite. Uh, 
became increasingly apparent. And that led to very soon after this divide in Europe, this divide in Korea, competition over, you know, uh, over initially China and Japan for influence. And that permeated during the Cold War into Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. That led to U.S. interventions of Vietnam, supporting coups in Chile, you know, backing uh, uh, horrific war crimes in in Bangladesh, um, and so you know, again, the Cold War dr- drove the U.S. And so, all I'm saying is that you're absolutely right, but I think that that's very understandable given the U.S.'s position. The only peer competitor they had was the Soviet Union, and they used the relationship with China after 1971 instrumentally to balance against that Soviet Union. Now things have changed. Right, so I mean, I would say that same logic is apparent today. Today, that peer competitor is China, for the U.S. And so, mm-hmm. increasingly, um, you know, and China has effectively, very publicly now, declared cold war on the U.S. Uh, we can call it something else, but that essentially, they have. They're in a large systemic struggle against the U.S. for influence, for competition, yeah. for, for resources and influence around the world. And China is increasingly playing a role in Europe, in Africa, in in across Asia, in Latin America. And that is now undermining. U.S. interests in many of these places, and it's become very zero-sum. So the U.S. today is looking for partners, allies and partners who are willing to cooperate. And today they see an India that has the exact same concerns, not exact, but very very similar concerns about China uh, at the border for influence in the region, uh, for influence on international groupings. And so that has led to this India-U.S. alignment. Uh, so in some ways, it's it's not uh, it's not strange. It's not distinct to the Cold War era. It's just the, the the players and circumstances have changed somewhat. Yeah. To me, the most interesting phase of Indo- Indo-American uh, relationship is actually the Bush, of, not the senior Bush. I'm talking about the junior yeah. Bush. Yeah. Era. To me, that that bit of the relationship is very interesting. Obviously, from an Indian perspective, also the Vajpayee era, I think things started to become... Uh, I know people might say, but we did the nuclear tests and there were sanctions from the American side. But I actually think things started to get better in a very weird way. This is my observation of whatever little I've interacted over here, lived over here, read books of this part of the world, is that the American mind only after a point understands a person who stands up to them. Otherwise, it doesn't understand them. And, uh, you know, and I think you're right. And, you know, the key moment for that was actually the nuclear test, right? So, and, yeah. and it was interesting. Um, I, I actually do have, I have it somewhere here of the book uh, as well. Um, so, you know, India conducted these nuclear tests. Um, the U.S. immediately levied sanctions. And I think, again, we forget how severe these were. They were like denying visas to scientists, uh, suspending development assistance. I mean, uh, credit, uh, you know, again, with very rare exceptions, such as food and, and a few other things, credit stopped. Um, you know, they tried to block uh, multilateral lending to India. So it was it was quite severe sanctions that, that followed against India and Pakistan, and they essentially had to do the same thing to Pakistan once uh, Pakistan followed. What what followed then was actually very interesting, which was the India, after conducting the tests, engaged in this dialogue with the US. And essentially, and this was led by Jaswan Singh uh, at the mm-hmm. time, he actually, when he started the negotiations, he was the deputy uh, head of the planning commission. He became external affairs minister afterwards uh, during the course of this. And he had a dialogue with Strobe Talbot, who was the deputy secretary of state on the U.S. side. They met multiple times over about a year and a half. Um, and essentially, just you know, Jaswant and Vaj, with Vajpayee's support and Brijesh Mishra's support, they understood one thing, which is if they played for time, they could actually slowly underwrite those sanctions. And they found sympathetic voices in the U.S. Congress, 
um, who actually wanted to trade with India, including from places like agricultural states who wanted to sell wheat to India. So they wanted to water down the sanctions. Mm -hmm. And actually, they found allies amongst the G7, particularly France and surprisingly Italy. Uh, Japan was on the more extreme end, wanted more severe sanctions against India because for them, the nuclear issue was particularly um, sensitive. But it was actually the Europeans, largely the French and, and Italians, who tried to under, under you know, dilute those sanctions as quickly as possible. And so India found that basically the more they played for time, the U.S. couldn't sustain those sanctions and opted eventually by late 1999, about a year and a half later, to drop most of those sanctions that led to Bill Clinton coming in early 2000 for a visit to, uh, the, to India. Um, and so that led the ball rolling. I mean, the, the only thing subsequently, and this leads to the Bush years, was India it was then effectively in 2005 able to get an agreement on civil nuclear energy. And there, the essential compromise was that the US, were, US, and if the US did it, others would follow, would treat India as a de facto nuclear weapon state. It would essentially not put any punitive measures on India for its nuclear program, the nuclear weapons program engage in normal nuclear commerce with it if india only aligned its export controls on nuclear with international standards so that was the essential compromise so you know the us made five demands of india immediately after nuclear tests india really only met one of them but in exchange not just got the sanctions lifted which they did early on but essentially got access to uh, normal um uh, to, to, to regular nuclear commerce. And so I think the moral of the story, as you point to, is sometimes you have to be clear about, clear and realistic about what your end goal is, which is you want to be a sort of, you know, uh, enter the nuclear mainstream while having a nuclear weapons uh, deterrent, um, that you're not going to let the US or other, you know, try and, and, and stop you. And you need to be clear about where your fundamental red lines are. Um, and that led to, I think, a much more productive kind of engagement on both sides. You know, the process of that also led to just the U.S. and Indian governments learning a lot more about each other. India had to learn how to work with Congress, the U.S. Congress, which is very independent, very autonomous, mm. uh, to get legislation passed. Uh, the, in, uh, the U.S. system also learned a lot about the Indian bureaucracy and how to how to engage with them. So I think it was a learning curve, very steep learning curve on both sides. And today, I think we see the, in some ways, the benefits of that. Yeah, it's, it's it's. I remember two scientists who were denied visas. I actually personally know two who were denied visas to go to America and a tourist visa. What the hell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was. Uh, yeah, it was. It was not. A, I mean, again, it was a very steep decline. But then again, over a year and a half, we kind of uh, normalized. You know, the, one of the things it, again, when you look back, that really again catalyzed the India-U.S. relationship. We forget is the Y2K. Um, scare and again, uh, people under the age of twenty-five would not rem even remember this today. But yeah. there was a scare in the year 2000 that, you know, computers around the world would shut down <laughs> yeah. uh, because of a date problem. Uh, and so everyone needed software upgrades for that. So there was a huge demand for Indian. You know, India was really the only place that could produce computer engineers at, uh, in, in, at scale to meet that worldwide demand. And that in some ways helped the boom. You know, today the Wipros and Infosys and TCSs of the world really benefited from that uh, That. What role did you think 9-11 had to play in Indo-American relationships? That's interesting. You know, it's, I think there are two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, it actually, you know, India had been complaining for, for more than 10 years, 15 years about Pakistan-supported terrorism, 20 years, by Pakistan-supported, Pakistan-backed terrorism. 
and it largely fell on deaf ears. You know, when you think about the Mumbai blasts, the Bombay blasts of 1993, the, um, uh, you know, we had a series of attacks in the 90s and, you know, support for terrorist groups in JNK for uh, the Khalistan uh, insurgency in the 80s. And that fell on deaf ears in the West. You know, if, if it was uh, state support against India, the West didn't care. 9-11 really woke people up. So suddenly, you know, when after you started seeing a shift, the parliament attacks in December 2001, there was a bit more sympathy for India's position. I think the real big change came in 2008 with the uh, 2611 Mumbai attacks. And that changed, you know, uh, fun, you know, there you had a level of U.S.-India counterterrorism cooperation that neither side had seen before. The FBI actually helped in India in terms of the forensics and and uh, because Americans had been killed. And so I think 9-11 change that on the on the one hand it brought india and the us together because it increased sympathy in in the us for attacks against the west uh, attacks against india um and what, how much terrorism was a problem the on the other hand for the first few years after that it actually led to uh, the us being a little distracted which is why in some ways the nuclear question was not addressed until 2005 in some ways the us lost 4 years it was preoccupied with afghanistan initially and then Iraq after 2003. And uh, again, it, it was not that there was ill will or anything against India. It was just a lower priority uh, for, for, for the US government for a few years until 2005, uh, until the second Bush term. The, um, I'd say another problem I think was on Afghanistan, which was, again, India should have been happy that the US came in and toppled the Taliban in 2001. That is what India had been trying to, India had been supporting anti-Taliban forces throughout the 90s and actually in some ways before, uh, before the, even the Taliban existed, but the Islamist uh, uh, forces in Afghanistan. And yet the U.S. continued to defer to Pakistan in executing this war in Afghanistan. Uh, they believed that they needed, they were dependent on Pakistan for intelligence for lines of communication, so supply lines via the ground lines via Pakistan, um, and that the Pakistanis could help politically as well. And yet, you know, the Pakistanis did just enough to continue justifying a flow of uh, aid, military and, and economic aid to Pakistan, but were always playing a double game. And I think this was, I mean, I was living in between Washington and Delhi at the time, and it was, it was incredibly frustrating because I think it was quite apparent to everybody what the Pakistanis were doing. And yet successive U.S. leaderships were were duped into thinking we could work with Pakistan. They, they used the fail, you know, um, nuclear security was often used as a card, which is if you don't, you know, if you don't give us economic aid, then, you know, we have these nuclear weapons and who knows, it may fall into the hands of some uh some islamist group and then you know you'll have a nuclear crisis on your hands a nuclear terrorist attack on your hands so that kind of a combination of blackmail the lines of communications and intelligence were used to kind of keep the americans and so you know u.s officials would be telling india keep out of afghanistan even though india was actually trying to help build rebuild afghanistan and actually work to further an objective that the u.s had so I think when you look back upon this, that that's you know it seems mad in, in, in hindsight, but it was it was kind of um, unfortunate and tragic to see play out in real time, and we see the consequences of that today in Afghanistan. So did they get uh, a reality check when they finally found Bin Laden in Pakistan? Like, did the Indians tell them? Told you. I you know, 
this is my view. I feel like the rank and file in the U.S. government, uh, you know, people who are dealing with the day-to-day defense relationship, the execution of the war in Afghanistan, the intelligence community, they ha- they knew the game the whole time. They were incredibly frustrated with Pakistan. They knew the Pakistanis were double dealing. I, for me, it was more people at the the top who were continuously duped by, uh, you know, that that I think, and I've never seen anybody doing a, subsequently now, particularly in the last two years since the U.S. withdrawal, I've not seen a really good candid assessment of where did the U.S. get Pakistan wrong and Afghanistan wrong. Um, people are now reinventing history, uh, to but but the reality is, you know, there were a lot of people who were. Um, who are complicit in some ways in, in what happened. Isn't that like a, a thing in US foreign policy circles? Because even the assessment will be done by people who did the decision making. So I guess there's a problem, an insider problem. Sometimes, sometimes. Um, no, I mean, on the other hand, again, there are many cases where the US has done pretty scathing self-assessments, you know, not not entirely on Vietnam. I mean, the, the problem is less on the operational level. I think they, they actually do a pretty good job, I think, of... of uh, having a feedback loop at, the, at that level, it's actually at the political level um, where I think you're right, where where nobody has an interest in, you know, opening it up and saying, look, where did we do get this wrong? Um, and again, you see that in v- whether it's Vietnam to some degree. Again, the, the, there are a lot of military reforms that took place after Vietnam, um, intelligence reforms that took place after 9-11. There was, you know, the nine, if you read the 9-11 report, it's a very candid and pretty self-critical assessment, but the, not at the political level. Um, but maybe that's that's true. That's um, uh, that's that's quite common. I mean, again, I'd say the U.S. compared to lots of other places does a pretty good job at at, at doing the lessons learned on, on the operational level. Yeah, I I find it very interesting in America in the way American politics functions is in India. Our politicians and an American, I guess, politicians everywhere are very similar in some way or the other. But uh, that it's more to do with the nature of the craft itself. I think po- po- politics is like, you know, it's not like I've not met a politician in my life off the record who knows that they might lose A election or B election. But you know, the analogy is always it's like, you know, I'm a boxer. I'm going into a boxing ring. I can't say I'm going to lose. When I go in front of TV, I'm going to say I'm going to win. And I understand that point of view. I think it's a fair, fair argument there. The politicians will never admit to things on the record most of the time. On the record, yeah, but but off the record, I think people can be more candid. <laughs> yeah, so so I get, but so now we come into. Uh, I I want to focus a little more on uh, on the Man- Dr. Manmohan Singh era because mm-hmm. obviously you know the uh, Atal Ji's era was about the nuclear tests and and the sanctions that flowed from then. Then Dr. Manmohan Singh's era. I know everybody talks about the nuclear agreement and the nuclear drill, but w- what would you say? Uh, was any other feature uh, that stood out in the Indo-American, uh, you know, India-U.S. relationship in the Manmohan Singh era? Then we obviously come into the current, current uh, Narendra Modi one. Uh, no, I think that that really took it up, which was I think they, there was a realization in two thousand four, early two thousand five, that um, the major impediment to better India-U.S. relations was the fact that India was, for administrative and legal purposes, being treated like North Korea. Right, that it had, it was outside the nuclear proliferation treaty regime, it and it had a nuclear weapons program. So, according to U.S. law, India was no different from North Korea. 
which meant that you couldn't do defense, certain kinds of defense equipment, you know, training, you couldn't engage in nuclear commerce. It was inhibiting a bunch of what I call dual use, high technology partnership. The space program, space cooperation is inhibited by that. So I think they realized that this was a major point of difference. And if you didn't address this at some point, it was going to constantly be a problem. So they announced the civil nuclear agreement in 2005. It was very tough negotiations on both sides uh, and step by, a step-by-step -step approach. But the key moment was in September of 2008, where um, the uh, what's called the Nuclear Suppliers Group uh, voted unilaterally to grant a waiver to India, uh, which is basically every country, every major country engaged in nuclear commerce agreed that we would treat India like a normal country. And that, I think, was the real game changer. U.S. law was also amended in the process. Uh, the Manmohan Singh government put its future on the line on this issue, and there was a vote in parliament very controversially over, over this issue. I mean, perhaps one of the few times that a government has put foreign policy at the center of its platform. Um, at the same time, again, the economic relations very organically started improving as well. Uh, and there was a lot of push by particularly a set of U.S. companies in, 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 the, in the U.S. And, and Indian companies as well. Uh, led by at that time CII and others to to really you know get better access to the U.S. market, so that I think was the story. the The puzzle I think I, I struggle with a little bit is why the momentum uh, kind of uh, dissipated after two thousand eight. So a few things happened at around the same time in two thousand eight to two thousand nine, uh, immediately after the nuclear deal was finalized, um, which was one uh, you had uh, an election in the U.S. and Obama came in. And Obama had a very different set of uh, priorities. Um, the second is that, um, uh, sorry, if you can hear my kids in the background. I don't know if you, <laughs> you can. It's all okay. good, man. It's, it's all, all good. good. I, I, my, I can hear my children shouting in the background. So it's, uh, uh, it's all good. Um, so one is 2008, 2009, one Obama got elected. And he had a very different set of priorities when he came to the US. Uh, when he came to US foreign policy and India as well. The second is that the global financial crisis happened. And suddenly there was a sense that there was an imminent power shift, that the US and Europe were in decline, that China and India, and India, you know, the Indian economy did pretty well until 2011 or so. So there, there was a sense that China, India, Russia were on the, uh, Brazil were on the uh, ascendance, the US and Europe were on the And that led to the, you know, the BRICS uh, coming together, uh, the, you know, the, 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 that dynamic shifted. And the third thing that happened was the 2009 election in India, and you had a, a sort of, even though the UPA government came back, um, that I think sort of uh, so, something's changed politically in, in, in India as well. I don't know how much, what I, what I puzzle over is how much each of those three factors played a role. But for whatever reason, the 2009 to 14 period saw in some ways a slowing down of India-US relations. It's not as if things went in reverse, but there was not significant forward progress there were little irritants that became major issues. So, you know, literally there were, you know, um, agreements were not signed because of differences over dairy, uh, da you know, dairy policy uh, that, that, that actually happened in 2010. Um, you had, you know, an incident involving an Indian diplomat uh, in New York who was uh, arrested. And, you know, uh, that, that became a huge issue in the India-US relationship. And uh, that was, I think, where, you know, you could see like these small, smaller matters, smaller areas of difference suddenly became, became major. 
And so I think, again, it's something I puzzle over a little bit is while the Manmohan Singh government in its first term did a lot to advance India-US relations, the second term was, was a bit more um, uh, defined more by differences. Despite Obama coming, you know, inviting Manmohan Singh on a state visit to the US, the only second state visit, uh, Prime Minister Modi's will be the third. Um, and despite Obama going in, in to India in his first term, the, again, despite the optics of the relationship being somewhat positive, the there was day to day. It was a much more uh, a, a relationship driven by irritants. Fair enough. Now, now let's jump into the current uh, Narendra Modi, uh, uh, you know, uh, government uh, era, where we've had. Uh, Interestingly, I I was just looking at the numbers and I was uh, shocked to know that now as a you know if uh, in terms of goods and services, US for uh, is our number one partner. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, so uh, again, if you look, uh, I mean, I, I did an assessment. Uh, it came out in the print a few days ago on sort of uh, well, I graded different aspects of the India US relationship A through D. So A is like very positive. B some things are you know mo moving, but from a low base. C areas where they're not differences per se, but things are not moving, and D, where there are fundamental differences. The D category is pretty easy to identify. Pakistan, Russia, Bangladesh, I would actually put in that category. I think there are some fundamental differences between India and US policy on when it comes to Bangladesh. Um, multilateral trade, not bilateral trade, but like uh, trade negotiations with the WTO, and then some of the, the you know democracy uh, things where actually they should be seeing more eye to eye, uh, getting back to the foreign affairs article. But you know the A. I think people overlook what what's going well, and your know, trade is going bilateral trade is going very well. Um, again, not as diversified as it should be, but it's it's still quite strong. Um, uh, energy is actually a very uh, you know prior to the Russia Ukraine war, the U.S. was the second largest provider of gas to India, natural gas to India, and the fourth largest provider of oil, um, which I think you know is is quite surprising. That we're getting so much oil and gas from the U.S. Um, clean energy is taking off in a in a in a good way. Um, uh, so the you know the energy re relationship is strong, and now the technology relationship is getting stronger. I mean that's I think where we'll see some major movement this year. Uh, but on semiconductors, five G, space, um, that's that's where there's a lot of uh, attention and a lot of movement. And where India and the US shape that relationship in the next year or two will have consequences for the next decade, maybe maybe more. So that's why it's so important to get this right now, um, which is if, if you can have a defense technology, space technology, um, semi semiconductor 5G, quantum AI, uh, high-speed computing, uh, if you can get that those fundamentals correct today, this will have very long-term consequences. Yeah. Uh, uh, to me, what was fundamentally changing in the Indo-American relationship is people... And these are not my words. Look, I'm I'm just a guy who asks questions. I'm just someone who asks questions. I, I don't claim to be any kind of an expert on geopolitics or foreign policy. Um, I'm one of those rare species on social media who's very comfortable in saying, I don't know. Um, I just look around. I try to listen to people. I try to read as much as I can, whatever little I could. It's very interesting to see... While the social media rhetoric from both sides, by the way, I am not saying just from the American side, from the Indian side too, in terms of chiding mm. has kind of attained its parakashtha, uh, if I was to yeah. use an Indian uh -huh. term. You know, everybody is like, uh, the Americans, you know, the Americans are known to chide everyone and very, you know, the American foreign policy is very 
preachy. They like to preach all the time. The only thing that has changed now is India has started, you know, kind of returning fire in the preaching department, and we preach also now, which is, uh, in my view, standing up for yourself. So I would say they started it. We just responded to their preaching. But in all these social media shenanigans, it's so weird because foreign policy was so so siloed, and now foreign policy has mixed with social media. Yeah. it's so absurd where now it's it's good because an average citizen also now can look at what the american president or the american secretary of state or the american ambassador to india is saying and doing and they can say well i find it cringe why are you doing yeah. this or and vice versa the the indian ambassador doing certain things and an average american can look at it and say i find it cringe why are you doing it but the trade and the overall whether it's tourism Indians going to America, Americans coming to India, mm -hmm. the trade quotient, import, export, any kind of thing, uh, interest in the both countries, the deepening of economic ties. It has never been better than this. I was just looking at the yeah. numbers and I was like, whoa. So uh, the, this the, and like I've never hidden my leanings politically, but even. But this podcast was not about the the party I prefer or like. This podcast is a historical look, which is why I spent so much time looking at every single era. But the point is that actually Indo-American relations have never been better than this. So I, I would argue, yeah, I, I would agree with you, which is that um, I, I think they're better than they've ever been. Um, they and you know part of having a good relationship is actually being able to discuss your the differences, right? So it's kind of funny because you know I, I follow a fair amount, you know, U.S. Europe relations, U.S. Japan relations, and they are filled with differences of their own, right? And so the, it's it's kind of funny because like uh, you know I talk to people, particularly Indians of a certain generation, and they say, well, we can't do this with the U.S. because we have this difference, and I say, you know, yes, absolutely we do, and part of having a good relationship is being able to speak frankly you know not shy away from talking about those differences and where your view where, where you're coming from on the uh, on, on that um but it's it's not as if the u.s doesn't have differences from with some of its closest partners i mean u.s canada have u.s mexico even worse so um uh so again we the, the, it's not uncommon to have differences um and again i think the sign of a healthy relationship is being able to, to address those you know one of the I'm speaking quite frankly here. One of the things American officials used to feel about India, uh, in their Indian counterparts, was that they would say something to them to their face. So they would say, essentially, when they would negotiate with the Indians, some, in the, I mean, I'm talking about this is a long time ago, they would, the, the feeling they would get is the Indian would come and say, I agree with you to their face. But then outside would, would say, or to different audiences, would say something else. And they saw that as in Indians being duplicitous. I think one of the and and quite honestly, I think part of it on the Indian side was driven by being somewhat intimidated about negotiating with the U.S. Um, I think what has changed a little bit is there's now a sense that you can speak as equals, that we you know you can put set out this is what how we see the situation, we are willing to work with you where our interests align. Um, and we're confident about that, but we're equally confident about uh, talking about where we disagree. And I think that that's, uh, but again, that, that's uh, social media is a beast of its own. I think yeah. I, I, my, my only advice, if at all, would be sort of don't pay limited attention to the chatter on social media. Things, things have very short life cycles. So, mm -hmm. you know, th this article that everyone, an article, a hypothetical article that someone is talking about today, 
a week from now will be forgotten a month from now will definitely be forgotten and a year from now you know will will truly be forgotten and sometimes it's more important to look at what you know the the fundamentals of the relationship uh, are and uh, where they're going and also you know who matters you know i i've seen this often um on both sides by the way where somebody will cite somebody at a think tank and i i see this as somebody who works at a think tank myself it's like oh so and so said this and because they are in the system in delhi or in washington they must be important and they must know what they're talking about and they give it equal weight to what the nsa of the country says right and i you know that that's fundamental you know when when the us nsa or the indian nsa says something it's not the same as an indian think tank person or us think tank person saying it so uh, there's sometimes a tendency to uh, conflate who you know who who is behind uh it it does matter to some degree what what people i mean i just saw a tweet by somebody today uh at a us think tank saying disagreeing with the us nsa's assessment on india and you know i just think that that you know everyone's entitled to their opinion that's fine but uh one does need to weigh where these are coming from these views are coming from so that's exactly and this has been what i have observed all the time uh i am one of those people who criticize indian you know thinkers and american thinkers all the time on social media from my point of view but uh, uh in no in no certain way am i under any delusion that it matters it doesn't matter mm-hmm. um uh, the the greatest lesson i took for social media was from joe rogan when he said shoot and scoot say what you want to say stop reading the comments otherwise you're going to be in a rabbit hole then ah. and you're never coming out of it I, I, and I, had, I i don't listen to joe rogan so i hadn't heard that before but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so but, but it's maybe good advice in that in yeah that. because uh, especially if you're in the opinionating business or in the yeah. business of informing people uh, and if your platform becomes anything but relevant then you have no other option but to stop reading uh, feedback after a point because it becomes humanly impossible but what do you make of uh, you know social media these days what do you make of all of this uh, you know people go you know you will face it uh, I, i am not in the foreign policy realm so i get abused for different reasons on social media but that's fine all of us get 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 yeah. get, get get beaten up in that sense digitally so you know i look i i pay i get i get a fair amount of criticism on social media um uh, sometimes personal and i frankly don't care about it because i i think if if somebody is not willing to put their own name behind you know if if brief is anonymous it's it does it, it's it has no value, zero value uh, because if someone is not courageous to put their own name behind an opinion then it's it's completely meaningless um where i find it sometimes is a bit problematic is when it's people who should know better right um so people who you know uh, I, trolls will be trolls but it's when people who are academic experts sometimes descend to being trolls and engage in ad hominem attacks and mostly i feel sorry for them because you know it's actually undermines their position as an expert it cheapens their opinion um and you know it also shows their own limitations and 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 um uh, you know so I, i i understand again everyone's entitled to their opinion I, i i don't have a problem with that but it's it's when uh sometimes academic experts engage in that kind of trolling um themselves that is sometimes i find uh just sort of in, in some cases at the very least unprofessional 
But in other cases, it also just shows the limitations. You know, I, I, again, I, not point out any individual, but I often see people who are very successful in a field, let's say history or economics or something, who opine very strongly on areas that they don't actually know that much about, which actually makes them look foolish. You know, so someone you would respect as a historian or an economist or, or, or political scientist who, who, who uh, sometimes doesn't, uh, clearly has not done uh, uh, their own homework. They don't uh, show a degree of rigor that they would expect for somebody opining in their field. Um, so that I think is where, where the problem is. I and mean, I, I personally now mostly use social media to share interest, things that I find interesting. Sometimes I disagree with it, but, but if I find a compelling argument on an issue I care about, I tend to share it on social media and I, I view it as a resource. If I find it interesting, other likely other people will. Um, so mostly, I do. I use it for that nowadays. I don't actually use it to share my opinion on a lot of things. Yeah, how I wish everybody was like you, Drew. <laughs> it's a, look, social media is a tool, right? And so you find how is it. On the one hand, you know, you can reach amazing audiences. Uh, you know, I can. Uh, I'll share an interesting article I read, and I know people across the world. You know, and on the other side of the world, are reading it uh, within minutes. Uh, and that's a really remarkable tool. It's 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 uh, it's quite amazing and wonderful. Um, but I think again, it has its downsides, and we just need to be conscious of both the plus and minuses. Yeah, one last thing, and then I'll take the audience questions too. But uh, what do you make of this whole ratings and freedom index and this index, that index business? Yeah. And uh, the, they they use this to beat us. It's not like these ratings did not exist before; they always yeah. existed. But yeah. in the age of social media, even these ratings have been weaponized now. So I'll give you how how some of this works. And I say this as somebody who um, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I think ratings are interesting. And again, how you ratings are not set in stone. They're not some, you know, God-given gospel, right? They're not, they're, they, they, they are subjective. All ratings are subjective. Credit ratings are subjective. They assess, they serve a purpose in instilling in a very neat way, um, where uh, using a set of criteria. And I think it's also incumbent upon any rating, you know, again, it could be a ratings agency or it could be one of these composite ind indices that you're referring to, to be transparent about the methodology they use. Hmm? So, you know, wh what are the criteria they're actually using? Hmm? Now, um, uh, so again, ratings can be helpful and useful for a variety of things, but they're all ultimately subjective. They're all based on factor taking in a certain set of factors. So defining an issue. So I'm, again, I'm making this up, I'm sorry, but if you're saying you're doing a transparency index, you have to make a definition of what, what does that mean? What is transparency? Then how do you assess it? Then do you have reliable data for that? Right. And then how do you weigh the data? Right. Does this matter for 30% or 40% or 50%? And if you, based on how you weigh those different criteria, the results will be different. Right. So again, these are subjective exercises and issue. The issue with some of these ratings that have come out, and again, they've been around for a long time, is that they have often a subjective element to it, which is based on expert opinion. And that would work well if that could work well if some of those experts themselves had no biases. Right. And the issue now often is that sometimes the experts used in, in some in compiling these studies have uh, have their own biases that are either conscious, in some cases very conscious, in some cases unconscious. And that is how it plays out now. So that, so this essentially is why I think some of the ratings are questionable. You just have to be transparent about the processes used and 
understand that they're subjective and uh, you know look at who are some the, the qualitative aspects of it who is actually compiling it the second problem i think is that these have they are used for domestic politics now so when these ratings come out in a certain way um, you can uh, they, they can be used for for domestic politics so it, so it now actually feeds into the domestic political arguments in other countries and that's i think a, 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 a you know before these these reports were printed out on paper and disseminated amongst 500 people in a very small audience today they're online and they can be read by thousands and millions of people in a country far away in real time or immediately and that is, I think, where the, the, the media environment and how that's feed, that, that's shaping politics. So that's why it's become more of an issue, I feel like. Um, but, but that is fundamentally what is happening, uh, I think, with, with a lot of these indices. Um, the question is, I, you know, I think um, looking at what, what goes behind all of these. I mean, I, I'll give an example of, a, of a, what in India we would consider a positive index, which I, I don't put a lot of stock into. Uh, there's an ease of doing business rankings that the World Bank does. Now, if you actually, India has been rising, by the way, in that, which is good. And I, I actually think so probably subjectively, the, the ease of doing business has improved in India. But if you look at the methodology behind it, it's actually quite flawed. It looks only at Delhi and Bombay, for example. Uh, it doesn't look at the rest of the country. So I, again, I think with any index, whether it is the results you want, whether it's the results you don't like, Look at what the indices you uh, are that are used. Look at how subjective it is, and ultimately, I think these are being, you know, uh, in many in many cases, the subjective factor is quite high. Fair enough, and I think uh, at the end of the day, I mean, some of the ratings were kind of laughable. Where you know, the, my my favorite was the the freedom of the press index. Yeah, where Afghanistan. finished below Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, I mean, no. So I, I, again, I mean, I've, I've said this as somebody who's helped compile certain other, not not in this method, but other kinds of composite indices. And uh, one is again, there's never a right or wrong. I mean, it, it is subjective. You you really have to say how much are you weighing these different factors. But ultimately, when you look get the results, I think one of the things that's incumbent upon a lot of pe people compiling composite indices is to look back and say, does it actually measure reality? Is it measuring what you're trying to measure? Uh, and if you get results like that, then clearly there's a there's something problematic in your methodology. Yeah, I'm looking for their funders. You know, if they can be conned into something like this, I'm definitely looking for some of their money. <laughs> That's all I can say. I'm just kidding. Look, I, I actually think uh, you know, I, I think one of the lessons is you know, for those in uh, for those in India is you know, uh, again, I think you it, it requires to be taken seriously. It does require a little bit of rigor. It's not about uh, gaming the system. But I do think it's worth. It would be worthwhile for organizations, whether they're academic or nonprofit organizations in India, to say, "Look, we we have we want to compile an international index on a particular issue that we care about. What this is our criteria that we're using. We are going to be transparent about our criteria and objective. And this is this is and how we define something will be fundamentally different from how maybe uh, a, a US-based organization will, will be able to do it, uh, will, will define the same thing. Um, I, I mean, I'll give you an example. If you are assessing the state of a democracy, how much do you emphasize electoral processes? How much do you emphasize a rule of law? How much do you emphasize pluralism? How much do you emphasize um, you know, democracy at the local level, right? And 
and again, these are subjectives. You know, uh, I mean, I again, as somebody who's lived in both places, I just feel the conduct of, if you just take the criteria of the conduct of elections, the mechanics of election, India is far superior to what the US has. You know, we have a centralized election commission. We have a transparent process. We have electronic voting machines. When people said that the, they, they were questionable, the, the ECI came up with um, uh, a system to for voters, VVI, you know, the v, uh, voter verified electronic voting machines. Right, uh, you see an election in the U.S. and you have—I mean, they're st it's still being litigated now. The, the the last election, where you have different states doing different things. Some things in the hands of private actors. Some things in the hands of uh, uh, local officials. It's a very disparate process and very inefficient, and it leads to these disputes that again are still being litigated today. So, um, I, I mean, I, again, if you just take that one criteria, uh, I would—I mean—assess that the U India scores much higher than the U.S. The question is how much, how, how much weight do you give each of these criteria? That's, I think, the question mark. Fair enough. So let's start with the questions from the viewers now. Uh, don't you think that India should take maximum advantage of the current U.S.-India bonhomie closest in 70s, akin to what Deng Xiaoping did for China, which got the result? So one one word answer, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, the, the, the opportunities are there. Uh, look, I'll, I'll give, I, I pay attention, for example, to the defense sector. And today, today, up, apart from certain very high technologies, and jet engines are one that will be coming up this week, um, nuclear submarine propulsion is another, apart from a few really crown jewels of the U.S. defense research establishment, India today on paper has access to quite a lot that, uh, of, def of defense technology that many U.S. allies or non-allies don't, don't have that. Uh, only closest, the closest allies do. The challenge is in sometimes getting the Indian system to take it full, full advantage of this. And we have this inevitable infighting on the Indian side, which is, should this be private sector, public sector, which public sector unit, you know, which um, uh, DPSU, defense public sector undertaking should take it, should be the lead on this. Uh, lack of coordination sometimes between uh, MOD and uh, the defense ministry, the services, the MEA, you know, th these are all the challenges that we have. And so again, the opportunity is there. In, in, not, not in everything, but on many issues, and uh, I, I feel you know this should be seized. And instead, the, you know, sometimes, and, and this is not just on the Indian side; this happens on the U.S. side too. There is sometimes a tendency to nitpick. You know, <laughs> that is, we focus on the 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 few things that we, you know. If someone is offering you ninety percent of something really good that they're not offering anybody else, instead of focusing on the ten percent they're not offering now, it's about seizing the ninety percent now because that window might close. So that's I, I I completely agree, and and I think if India, I I honestly believe in if India is able to take advantage of this and not just with the U.S. with Europe with Japan there there is a window of opportunity to take full advantage of India's partnerships for its own development to really, you know, uh, uh, move progress in India along multiple vectors. Fair enough. Now, I was expecting this question. How much do you think uh, the negative portrayals that New York Times and Washington Post articles uh, give uh, for India on 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 a weekly or a bi-weekly or a monthly basis damage the American public perception and then in turn damage Indo-American relations? Um, so uh, my quick take on that would be uh, I don't put a lot of stock in particularly the New York Times. Uh, and maybe Washington Post a little bit more, but 
but and the the fact is they still don't have the kind of national level courage, coverage in the US um that uh i think that, that you know they get a sort of disproportionate amount of attention because they're elite newspapers um but if you look at their readership it's actually not that significant and i think the new york times particularly and on, by the way one thing to understand about the us media is they have these very strict divisions between their opinion and their news and in many cases sometimes the news coverage is not uh, not necessarily bad sometimes it is uh, the opinion section opinion editors sometimes have a very different view and are very opinionated and are sometimes very set in their ways mm-hmm. and um uh, that i do think you know i i'm i'm I, I don't take a lot for example that appears in the new york times opinion section not just on india but just generally uh, uh taken that seriously anymore unfortunately um so again i won't put too much stock into it um the the question is you ask look let's start with the premise that the average american does not care about india it does not care about the world and it's not about yeah. india it does not care about I, the world i agree i yeah. agree <laughs> start with that premise secondly when they look at the world they have strongest opinions about places that america does not like there's an antagonistic perception of an antagonistic relationship these are today china russia uh, north korea iran you might be able to venezuela maybe these are the countries they feel that are inimical to america these dominate international news coverage friendly countries don't actually get much attention you know, ask the average american who is the prime minister of canada today and they may not know who that is who's the who's the president of france they may not know who that is and uh, these are sometimes the the closest uh, relationships the us has who's the prime minister of japan most most americans won't know so uh, i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that this is uh, now then ask an average american you know what do you think about india as, as a whole and most people will say the first thing that will come to mind is oh i have a friend or a teacher or a doctor who is indian mm-hmm. i have been to their house i have maybe been to a, a family wedding of theirs and they are very good people they're very professional they are they are good members of society that is their first impression often and they presume as a consequence of that that india indians and india are friendly so the general perception i think is that india as a society and as a country is a positive they 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 they, they, they may not have a great deep love or understanding of it but they generally is a mildly positive view so that's that's my starting premise so overall i wouldn't give too much credence to what uh, to elite opinion making um i think for people if anything i think there needs to be a deeper understanding of india the people who opine about india without ever having visited there in the last 10 years um many people are driven by old uh, experiences where i do think it matters is actually with the business press so the wall street journal the financial times to some degree the economist and there the reason why um uh having an accurate sense of um uh of you know view on the ground is that it will drive investment in business relations so uh, an average person reading the wall street journal will be somebody who is thinking about where should i make my next 2 million dollar investment around the world and for them their opinion of india matters so um you know again there's been on that score there's been very mixed views there's been very positive coverage for example of indian infrastructure spending um but uh to give one example um that you know i think there is a sense that india has come out of um come out of covid 
reasonably well. Its fiscal situation is, is, is pretty good. I think there are still doubts, though, about ease, broader ease of doing business. Um, and uh, that, I think, is, is where um, some of that opinion will matter. Fair enough. Um, what steps are the Americans taking to decouple the India-Russia defense uh, parameter? Or are they, uh, like, how do they look at it, given, given America's foreign policy shift when it comes to China? So, I mean, the, the American cozying up to India has a lot to do with the American relationship with China. I mean, it doesn't take yeah. a rocket scientist to figure that out. Yeah. So, so, so what do you what do you think they're going to look at our relationship with Russia's? Yeah. So, uh, three aspects to that. One is the uh, I think this is the biggest one in the long run, which is just a sense of the strategic picture. Um, that differences of everyone can assess that the Russia-China relationship has gotten very close, hmm? uh, very 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 close uh, over the last few years, uh, both in India and the U.S. The question, though, is I think we have very different views about what that means. For India, it is about actually continuing to engage with Moscow to keep up its own independent relationship with Russia. And that would give India more space in Eurasia. For the US, because the US is contesting Russia and Europe and China and the Indo-Pacific, it actually is driving Russia and China closer. And I think there are just differences about where Russia will land in the long run. How much will Russia be willing and able to accept uh, a status subservient to China in a post-Ukraine war future? So that I think there's a sort of a slightly difference of assessments on the strategic picture, both the current status and the future. Second is on the defense relationship more specifically, which is um, there I think there is an understanding, and there has been I think since last summer, I think, where the U.S. side understands that for Indian or India's own national security purposes, it needs to keep up a relationship with Moscow. That uh, you know, it's fr- it is uh, facing off with China on the disputed uh, boundary on the LAC, and that uh, it requires in India uh, a, a state of constant readiness on the part of the Indian Army and Indian Armed Services, and that in turn requires given the level of equipment, Russian equipment that the Indian Armed Services use, requires a relation, continuing relationship with Russia. So that understanding is now there in the US. I think the question is, over the long run, where does in India look? And there, I think most in the US uh, believe that a combination of Russia's inability to provide equipment because of the ongoing war, sanctions against Russia uh, in certain critical technologies, and uh, uh, payments mechanisms, lack of payments mechanisms, because the Russians don't want Indian rupees and don't actually don't also want rubles. So the lack of a non-dollar uh, payment mechanism. Um, uh, and in some cases, lack of quality will mean that over time, India will look for other sources, not because the US says so, but out because of it. And if you look at new next generation fighter aircraft and stuff like that, Russia is not bidding heavily there. So I think there's a larger sense that that this is where things are progressing. The third factor is the economic relationship, where I think there's just a lack of understanding sometimes in the US, but again, people are, at least people in the US government are beginning to understand that, which is India still needs to engage with uh, Russia for certain commodities that are tradable on the global market, oil being chief, uh, the chief one, coal to some degree, fertilizers is another major one, where today, just because of a global shortage, 
India for its own energy and food security needs to continue to have that relationship with Russia. So again, my sense is on all of these issues, there's today a better understanding in the US government, not always in the US media or amongst American think tanks about this is how India is approaching this. And when I explain this to people, I'm sometimes they're sometimes taken aback and say, oh, there's a very rational reason for all of this. And I say, yes, because we are rational people. Uh, but there's sometimes a sense that, oh, India is driven only by some sort of sympathy for what Russia did in 1971. And that's not, you know, again, maybe people may talk about that, but there is a, re a very clear cost-benefit um, thinking going on. Um, so my sense is in, in the US, at least again, in the US government, people understand that. I'm not so sure about the Europeans, though. And they're still, I'm surprised even uh, more than a year on, there's still a much more emotional reaction I get from Europe about India is funding Russia's illegal war as they, you know, that's, they, they view these things in very black and white terms, um, rather than trying to look at it from India's point of view. Fair enough. So can we maybe then as a follow-up, hope for a proper free trade agreement between India and US, let's say, you know, India, US helping India out in semiconductors, AI and robotics, what, what can we hope for? So uh, that, that second part, yes. Uh, I think there's a lot that can be done. Again, I mentioned the major technologies where there's discussion underway, and we will see hopefully this week some progress, some tangible progress on some of these areas, not all of them, but on uh, defense, space, uh, 5G, uh, uh, tele telecom more broadly, semiconductors, uh, AI, quantum, uh, high-performance computing. Uh, maybe biotech, that's a bit more difficult, but uh, maybe some, some progress there on base, uh, bio, bio, bio and pharma. Uh, but these, are, I think, are some integral, a little bit on automation. So, I mean, but the problem is with a lot of these issues today, it's not the, you can have the governments agreeing, and they do. It's now in the realm of the private sectors. So basically, the, gov the two governments today are trying to get the two private sectors, the two research communities to link up. And sometimes that requires making a business case, making a market case for why why should a U.S. high-tech company be investing in manufacturing in India? That is where I think where a lot of the issues are stuck today, which is not a bad place to be stuck, but it's, it requires a very different uh, set of policies and policy approaches to make that happen. It can't just be the two governments sign a deal and it's done. On the, on the free trade agreement, I don't see that happening in the near future between the U.S. and India for a few reasons. Uh, the U.S. and India are both net importing economies. They're both market, they're both consumption-driven economies. And as such, they don't have that kind of complementarity, barring a few sectors where, they're, where we're seeing that take place organically. So uh, that's why I think doing a free trade agreement, you know, if you have the first and third largest uh, goods trade deficits in the world, it's very hard to do that. Uh, maybe soon first and second. So that's, I think, a big bit of a problem. The U.S. has a particular challenge doing trade agreements, and I think the current government has said that they are not interested in traditional free trade agreements at all with anybody, not just India, uh, they, because they, they see that as uh, undermining middle-class jobs in the U.S., and they're not entirely without, uh, uh, with, not entirely without reason. Uh, India, we have, I think, our own concerns. So India is now engaging in a set of free trade agreements, uh, negotiations, Australia, the, te the, 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 te the tentative one has been completed. There'll be a more high quality one that will hopefully be completed by the end of this year. Uh, the next steps are UK, uh, which hopefully again will be concluded by the end of this year. Canada is actually, the negotiations are quite far advanced. And that would be quite significant because Canada and the US are both NAFTA countries. 
and then the EU, which will take at least another two years, minimum. So I think that is a sequence of Indian trade negotiations with the major, there are a few minor ones, Israel, Bangladesh, a few smaller uh, economies, but these are the big ones that are underway, uh, Australia, UK, uh, Canada, EU. Once those are concluded, I think you can then start talking about that. I think barring that, barring the Canada and EU ones, I don't see uh, any talk about India-US FTA is completely meaningless. I don't think it's going to happen. So what do you make of all these accusations hurled against America all the time? Because uh, they're not completely off the mark, but I don't know if they're on the mark on India. You know, America, every time something or the other is done, uh, America is accused of uh, attempts at regime change. And uh-huh. I think, um, uh, what, what do you make of all of that? You know, I think that that's a bit of a, you know, the US government used to do regime change in places. Um, yeah, they, which they, is they, why historically they, they have done it. They did it, you know, uh, we know now, you know, in, in the famous case in the 1950s, uh, Guatemala, uh, Iran was a famous case uh, where there was, uh, the CIA played a role, Chile, uh, where they supported a coup. Um, so, you know, there is an old historical legacy of that. Um, Iraq, of course, was regime change using uh, intervention. Um, so uh, Libya as well. Uh, interestingly, Libya, actually, the U.S. was ambivalent about it. It was actually the U.K. and France that led led that intervention. Um, now, I, I mean, this is where I come out on this. I think it today it, it fundamentally the U.S. is no longer nearly as powerful as it was <laughs> in relative terms. And its ability to do that, I mean, forget about India, to do that in a small country. The U.S. hasn't been, the U.S. has been trying to do regime change in Venezuela and has failed, right? It hasn't been able to do that. It has been trying to do regime change in Syria. It's backing, uh, so it has failed. Um, I'm much more confident in India's own uh, structures and strength to believe Absolutely. that that is actually a reality. Will, will I mean, I know there were, for example, uh, effectively Sheikh Hasina in Bangladesh made a, some uh, sort of very direct accusations about the US uh, working against her government, effectively, uh, you can call it. Uh, um, now, it's quite clear that sometimes the US government has clear pref- preferences in terms of what government they see as more favorable in a particular country. And obviously tries to support it in various ways. But I do think if you look at the recent record, post-Cold War record of American attempts at regime change, it's not a particularly strong record. And secondly, uh, I do think that India's fun- fundamentally, Indian, Indian institutions are, are very strong. And I don't think they, they, there's need to worry about that. Fair enough. Last question, and then we'll wrap up. So... Now, a lot of Indian origin folks, like you did mention Kamala Harris, who has an Indian mm-hmm. connection, but Vivek Ramaswamy is also yeah. fighting on the Republican, uh, you know, primary ticket. Uh, he's trying Nikki, to... Nikki Haley. Nikki, Nikki Haley is there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of... Um, obviously, then you have individuals like Rokhan, uh, Pramila mm-hmm. Jaiswal, uh, uh, different people in different political outfits. So, so what do you see uh, the Indian diaspora and their role in future uh, American politics? It's fascinating, actually. You know, uh, we, when you talk to people who are um, from other Asian countries or other, they actually look at the Indian American success in politics with a degree of envy. 
uh, they see like you know, I mean, again, they I think they presume it's much more centralized and 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 planned that the Indian community is a block and which it's not. <laughs> um, but they, they they look at like oh wow, they you know they're, they're sort of a vice president, two presidential candidates. There've been a few governors. Uh, they've been you know the five members of Congress, members of the House of Representatives who are of Indian origin. Uh, if you look at the state level, it's even more uh, so. And again, for a community that that uh, at least you, citizens is about one percent of the U.S. population, uh, they punch very much above their weight as a, in in politics, Indian Americans. And uh, you know, a, a credit to a lot of them for that. The thing is, you know, one is there's a great diversity of views, right? So you have somebody like Kamala Harris who comes from the left, and you have somebody from like Vivek Ramaswamy who's who's trying to appeal to the the right, and so that that shows that the you know a Nikki Haley is a sort of centrist right figure uh, in, in the spectrum, and and um, uh, that shows that one there is incredible diversity of views amongst the Indian American community. There's not they're they're not a monolithic block. Um, that's also true of Indian voters as well. Uh, while a majority of them vo- still vote Democratic. Um, that there, there's a very large uh, set of, of views on that. and But all of this translates into views on India as well. And my sense, and this is a very superficial, I'm drawing painting with very broad brushstrokes here, is that a first generation of Indian Americans still has a very strong uh, emotional connect to India. They, they, their family, their, you know, their parents or their siblings are still in India. They grew up there. They went to university. They went to you know, at least some higher education in India. Their batchmates are in India, doing well for themselves. So they have a they have that connect. Uh, so they are very keen on um, you doing more business with India, establishing you know if they if there's if there's a successful Indian American academic here who who came to the U.S. They often want to to collaborate with uh, people in in India. So in the, the you know b- building up the research links, the, the the cultural links, the business links. I I'm not so sure about the second generation that is uh, Indians born in America, who grew up in the U.S. And there you have much more diversity. Not all of them, some of them do, but not all of them have that close a connection. They would sometimes travel to India once every few years. You know maybe their grandparents are there. But they they grew up in the U.S. and for them, I think the challenge in the long run, as I see it, is how do you keep that second, third, even in future fourth generation Indian Americans connected to India? How do they develop an understanding of India, uh, of contemporary India, not in India of their parents? You know, and to give you an example, I mean, like uh, let's take somebody like Bobby Jindal, who was governor of Louisiana. You know, he would speak about the India of his parents as a place they wanted to run away from, right? And, you know, in his speeches, he would say, you know, my parents grew up in India, they came to the U.S. to find better opportunity. And so there's a tendency to, you know, to talk of India as if it was the India of the 1950s or 1960s rather than the India of today. And that is where I think much more needs to be done on both sides to improve that connect, improve that understanding between Indian Americans, particularly second, third generations here in the U.S. with, uh, with, with, uh, modern India today. Fair enough. You know, we well for for what it's worth, we have the T Twenty World Cup next year. Yes, yes, <laughs> in America. Yeah. Yes. So both. Uh, I hope you're going to go and catch. I it would love to, but it's, I think it's in Florida, so I'd have to. Not not if it was near me, I would definitely be there. If if India was playing near me, I would definitely be buying tickets already. But, uh, well, 
Uh, so, all right, uh, Dhruva, it was uh, as always. It is a pleasure talking to you. Uh, yeah. I've uh, hopefully uh, we we will catch up uh, sometime soon, and yes. I will be uh, inviting you back on the podcast to discuss something amazing. Great, but this, these are exciting times for India-U.S. relations. I expect to see a lot this coming week when uh, the Prime Minister comes. We'll have yoga and a speech to Congress, and hopefully, I think they tried to get some of the agreements past the finish line. But hopefully, we'll have some agreements uh, soon. Uh, but overall, as you said, like despite all of the noise on social media and elsewhere, uh, I think we're seeing a, a much more constructive and a much more uh, a partnership of equals emerge between India and the U.S. It was very exciting times for that. Fair enough. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up in the description of the podcast. You'll have through us uh, social media details, even of ORF America. So go check out the work of ORF America too. And uh, I also wanted to point out to, you know, Dhruvadid mentioned uh, Tanvi's book. Uh, Tanvi actually did a great thread recently on uh, the Indo-American relationship. And it's a nice thread with uh, images explaining a lot of data maybe you guys can go and check that out too uh, the indo-american relationship is going to become better and better uh, there will be some portions of uh, you know american think tanks and american foreign policy establishment that will chide india the, the american uh, communication strategy is very preachy at times and then there will be people like me on the indian side who will be you know, pushing them or rubbing them the wrong way. Uh, how many times have I been told by my friends in America, Kushal, you're too harsh on America. You know, you 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 are too strong in your words. I was like, well, you know, I just give it back as, go as good as I receive. Uh, you will never see the Indian government doing it or the American government doing it. And that's how it should be. The government should be nice to each other. And the commentators on both sides of the aisle should be as, as firm as possible. So guys, please, as always, like this video, subscribe to the channel, subscribe support the charvak podcast uh by becoming a member and um, and you know uh if possible go and check the orf report card it it has a detailed status report uh on indo-american relations too and i'll leave you guys at that until then namaste take care bye bye